Hey folks, welcome to another episode of The Shrink and the Pundit. I'm Jeff Salzman, the pundit, and I'm here today, as always, with my longtime comrade and integral psychotherapist extraordinaire, Dr. Keith Witt, who is the shrink. Dr. Keith is a real pioneer in the field of integral psychotherapy with over 40 years of private practice, and you can check out his books and videos, as well as the School of Love lecture series and the Therapist in the Wild web series at his website, drkeithwitt.com. You can find more of my commentary on politics and culture at dailyevolver.com. So with that out of the way, how you doing today, Dr. Brother Keith? I'm doing great. How are you doing, Jeff? I'm doing great, too. Good to talk to you. So last time, we talked about marriage mm -hmm. and about how healthy attachment and commitment can create what you call the marital love affair, which I love. And, and I think that's what virtually everybody wants and thinks they're going to get when they're walking down the aisle. But sometimes that wedded bliss curdles. Just about half the time. About half the time. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, so then, you know, this, a couple faces this awful realization that maybe we're not going to live happily ever after, after all. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, today we want to talk about that part of the bargain and that's divorce. And you've done a lot of work on that. Of course, you've had over 50,000 private therapy sessions. So I imagine the topics come up once or twice. Yeah, it's 55,000 at this point, and it's come up hundreds of times. Yeah. So you did actually did a series on your School of Love lecture series on your, on your website on divorce called I Do I, I Want a Divorce? How to Tell and What to Do. Yeah, I did a class. I realized in last summer that there really wasn't a concentrated source of information for people to make the transition from do I want a divorce to, I've decided to have a divorce to what are the, uh, the things that I need to know to minimize the pain and expense? Um, there's an awful lot of, of really important information and I really couldn't find it, uh, uh, collated together. And so I decided to do a class on it. Yeah. So I did a, an intense 50 minute class, uh, about how to tell if I want a divorce. And, uh, uh, you know, I put some graphics in it, um, you know, worked a lot on how could I help people make this transition. And then it's now posted on my School of Love web, web series, my School of Love lecture series. And if people are interested, they can check it out. Cool. Well, let's go over some of the uh, points that you made um, now. Mm -hmm. So the question is, do I want a divorce? You know, things aren't <laughs> quite what I thought. Uh, I have the whole rest of my life. Can I afford this? Um, is my wife or husband the jerk that he seems? My kids, is this better for them or not? How do you start sorting through this? The transition from wondering into figuring it out is a huge life transition. And it's a big deal. It's very, very important. And uh, there are steps and stages that people go through in that transition. Uh, and they're important. Now, mostly when people talk about divorce, um, they talk about it, one, disapprovingly, which is somewhat unfair. I mean, it's a part of life and it's a part of every culture. And secondly, um, not really, they talk about it from a sociological standpoint. 
the, the way that, for instance, American culture pushes Americans into romantic breakups and divorces. We have more of those than any other Western country. And, and those are, there's a lot of lower right and lower left forces at work that do that. And we've talked about that in, in other mm -hmm. situations. Right. But that being said, we're all individuals and couples in this culture. And what do we do when we start having doubts about our marriage? Right. So the first thing that you, you do, hopefully, is you go talk to a therapist. Now, I know I run the risk of being one of those carpenters when your only tool is a hammer. All problems look like nails. But, you know, psychotherapy is pretty much good for an awful lot of life problems, and particularly this one. Yeah. So if a couple comes, interestingly, doubting their marriage, usually what they want is to improve their marriage, but they have despair about whether they can. And in that situation, that my challenge to them is, since your number one choice is to try to improve your marriage, let's spend a significant period of time, say a minimum of six months, trying to improve it and then see what arises out of that. Mm -hmm. And then what comes out of that, if the couple goes along with it, is either the relationship gets better, it gets worse, or it stays the same. If it gets better, mostly they want to continue. Not always. Once in a while, it gets better. And one person says, you know, yes, we've worked on it. Yes, it's better. Communication is better. There's less fights. We're having better sex even. But now I'm clear I don't want to live with this person. Yeah. So sometimes improvement clarifies it to, that somebody wants to leave. Um, if it doesn't get better or if it stays the same, then that becomes a conversation with the couple. It looks like this is what you've got. Now, are you, are you willing to keep putting energy and being more comfortable with what you got or does one of you want to make a decision? And all it takes is one person clear about wanting a separation to create a separation. And when that happens, everything changes. Mm -hmm. What's usually the case is that a, an individual will come to me and they, they'll say, I'm ambivalent. I'm ambivalent about my partner and uh, for a variety of reasons. Sometimes it's pretty straightforward. They're having an affair. They're an addict. Um, they're abusive psychologically, sometimes even physically. Um, and, and I don't know what to do. Uh, most people are biased towards wanting their, their marriage to work, which is probably a good thing. Well, not even probably. It's a good thing. And so the question becomes, well, what do you want? And that's a hard question. You know, people will go, well, I want to stop hurting. I want my partner to stop being mean to me. You know, and I want, I'll go, I want, all right. You know, I don't want to have to deal with this anymore. I'm happier when he's gone or when she's gone. So maybe I, I should be separate. And I go, okay. So is that what you want? Or do you want this relationship improved? Would you like your partner um, to be him or her without the abuse uh, or without the addiction or without the affair? Um, would you like to have more of what you had in the beginning when you had these high hopes? And sometimes people will go, yes. Um, and sometimes people will go, no. Now, if they go, no, I go, all right, well, let's continue. And if, they, if it continues to be clearly, I want to separate over several sessions. In other words, if they stay clear that they want to be separate over numerous states of consciousness, it begins to be clear and clear that's what they want. If what they say is, I want things to improve, then I'll say, invite your partner in. Let's have a session. And... I'll refer them to another therapist if there's a big secret involved. You know, sometimes the person I'm talking to is having an affair with another person. And then I can't work with them as a couple. 
And in that case, you have to stop your affair to work out your, your marriage. <laughs> it's a good rule of thumb, isn't it? Really good rule of thumb. <laughs> You know, affairs are all hot and wonderful and romantic and sexy and juicy. So to try to work on a marriage where you're pissed off and dry and damned and you can't stand them and all that other stuff, while you have this great lover, it's just ridiculously yeah. impossible. Yeah, no. And I'll tell people that, you know, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> so anyway, you know, invite your partner in. If the partner refuses to go into therapy, big, big red flag. You know, the, the odds of that couple separating just skyrocketed. Okay. Yeah. If the couple, if the guy decides to come in or the woman decides to come in, okay, that's a better sign. And then they come in and I ask the other person, you know, we talk about the ambivalence, what do you want and so on. And again, it's either we'd like to improve it or one of us wants to separate. And then we start working on it. And, you know, we have to deal with the major issues. Um, you know, an interesting thing with couples, a person can say, I can't stand your alcoholism. You know, I'm not going to continue to be married with you with the alcohol, or I'm not going to keep being married to you if you yell at the kids. Um, the differences in parenting predicts divorce with 80% accuracy. You know, if you're a kind of a bully parent, your partner's kind of more of a touchy-feely parent, that predicts divorce with 80%. Really? Interesting. Yeah, it's, it's a big deal. Differences in, in parenting styles. Um, or the affair. I can't stand your affair. But then the person says, well, that's too bad. I'm going to keep doing it. And if you stay, then as it, it turns out, you really can stand that. And that's, so that becomes part of a, you know, codependent sticky mess. And so if someone says, I can't stand it, I go, well, if you can't stand it, you kind of need to walk the walk of can't stand it. Mm -hmm. Do you ever uh, encourage somebody or does, have you ever seen it work where somebody just decides, okay, I can handle your affair. Have at it. You know, I like my life. I like living here, you know, good riddance, but you know, I'm. The, the, it's interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm sending my, you can see me. I'm sending my brain back through thousands uh -huh. of people. And I actually cannot come, come up with one situation where that was really the case. Isn't that something? Not one time. Interesting. Temporarily, people have tried to do it. Right. But it's always just gone straight to hell. Right. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and I'll tell them, you know, you might be the exception. You might be the one in a thousand. Or in your case, the one in 54,000. Yeah. I mean, for the, you might be the exception. But in my experience, if you try to do this, we're going straight to hell. And, and, and I'll, go, I'll go along with you. You know, you want to try that, sure. Come mm -hmm. in and have sessions and I'll, I'll take the train to hell with you. And when, when, you know, either you won't go there or if it does, then we'll have to figure out what to do when, you know, we're all in hell together. Right. It's a lot easier to be in hell with your therapist than by yourself. And I don't mind doing it if I only have to do it for an hour. You know what I mean? Right, <laughs> right on. I give people data about this. You know, back in the seventies and the eighties, someone would say, well, I only want to stay for my kids. And I was kind of, I was young and arrogant in those days. And I would say things like, well, that's not good enough. You need to have to stay for yourself too. But that changed um, as, as I matured as a therapist. Um, it's legitimate to want to stay for your kids. But if you're staying for your kids, your relationship needs to at least be gradually improving. And this works statistically. Divorces peak about the fourth year of marriage, hmm. which makes sense from an evolutionary standpoint. That's about the, the amount of time it takes for a child to become relatively self-sufficient in a tribe. 
And the median time, in other words, where there's more, there's just as many divorces after as before, seven years. But four years is when it peaks. Mm -hmm. When you talk about the biology, so that's the amount of time that a man needs to stay with a woman and a newborn to get the newborn viable. And that's yeah. sort of biologically built in. And, and that's your, your sort of first baseline or your, yeah. or your, your first challenge. Right. Yeah. Okay. That's why 39% of divorces are people without kids. You have one kid, now it's 27%. Mm -hmm. You have two kids, it's 18%. Hmm. You have three kids, it's 12%. Hmm. That the odds of a couple uh, splitting up go down the more children that they have. And that's fine. You know, the, the problem in America, of course, is that people feel a moral responsibility to be great parents without the same kind of moral responsibility to be a great spouse. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's backwards and crazy, which I'm not shy about telling everybody. Mm -hmm. uh, and But I'm going against the cultural currents uh, when it comes to that. Yeah. And so we, we explore all those parameters and so on. And it's one point or another, one person decides, I don't want to live with you anymore. They make that decision. Yeah. Sometimes they make it in a therapy session. Sometimes they make it at home and they announce it in a therapy session. And at that particular moment, it's, it's like those science fiction movies when the space-time continuum starts to waver. Everything changes. Yeah. And usually I'm the one that notices that first because they're used to going back and forth in conflict with each other. Even low-conflict couples have a lot of tension below the surface. And, you know, the high-conflict couples, it's on top. And, and you know, when it comes to kids, just to mention that, 70% of divorces are low-conflict con couples. If those couples stay together, their kids will do better. If the high-conflict, those 30% high-conflict, the kids actually are quite relieved when parents separate because there's that sense of danger in that high-conflict couple. So one person goes, and, you can t and I can tell this person is serious. They want to live separately. There's just a feeling about it. So the pace of space-time continuum shifts, and all of a sudden, the, the contract of the, of the relationship and the contract of therapy is completely different. And I'll stop them, and I'll tell them that. I'll say, okay, now everything's different. Hmm. This therapy now is no longer about you resolving your issues. This therapy is about you separating with as little pain and expense as possible, because separation is painful and expensive but it can be more painful and expensive or less painful and expensive. If you have kids, your, se your separation and divorce will be a signature trauma for those kids. 15, 20 years from now, they walk into a session with me or some other therapist. Within the first 15 minutes, one of the things they're going to say is my parents divorced when I was 5, 10, 15, whatever. It's a signature event. And so you just accept that. Let's not pretend it's not. And, you know, we can make it more stressful for your kids, less stressful. It can compromise their development more. It can compromise their development less. And we want it to compromise it less. We want it to be less stressful. And so what we're entering then is what I call a separation session with a couple. So then the couple will get kind of scared at that point. And then they'll start going into one of their familiar conflicts. They'll start arguing about, you know, whether she's nice to him or not or whether, you know, he's mean to the kids. Interesting. And I'll, I'll stop him and I'll say, see, this is you guys avoiding the issue. It's no longer about figuring that stuff out. It's about separating. 
you don't have to resolve that with each other. Get into individual therapy, resolve that with, find out you're part of it and resolve it in individual therapy and you're less likely to do that again in your next relationship. And you're almost certainly going to have a next relationship. 90% of guys, 80% of women get remarried. And also, I'll tell them, just because you're divorcing doesn't mean your marriage is a failure. People say failed marriages. Margaret Mead was famously asked on her deathbed, you've had three failed marriages. What do you have to say about it? She got all pissed off. She said, yeah, I've had three marriages and three divorces, and all three of them were successful marriages. Yeah. They all served me the way that I wanted at the time of my life. And then that's a variant of marriage. It's a legitimate variant. Yeah. And I think actually people are getting more and more um, comfortable with that idea. Uh, mm -hmm. as we live longer and, you know, as we just basically develop. And it's one of the things that I was impressed by in, in your, um, uh, in, in your lecture on your website was you were talking about, you know, divorce, even as a sociological phenomena is not a bad thing. And a high divorce rate is not a sign that a culture is weak. It's actually in some ways a sign that a culture is strong. Yes. And, and, and tell us about that. Well, in, Hunter-gatherer culture and modern culture where we have egalitarian relationships, about the same divorce rate. In agrarian culture, it goes way down. Why? Women don't have resources and women are property. And, you know, you can't, you know, if you, and also even if they had the vision of property, which they didn't in, you know, in agrarian society, a woman can't take two acres of wheat on her back if she leaves, uh, you know, a guy. And so there's a huge lot of pressure socioeconomically and, and you can, and, and from a survival standpoint for people to stay in unhappy marriages. The concept of, a, of people being together because they love each other and they serve each other emotionally is a modern concept. You know, that as a rationale for marriage really didn't show up until the first part of the 20th century. Right. Um, uh, to this day, 76% of Indian, uh, India Indian, uh, young people say they wouldn't mind an arranged marriage if someone arranged somebody that fit them well. Um, and so this whole new concept of inegalitarian marriage is, is where we stay if we want is, is new. Also, as women hit the labor force and are, and are more equal economically, uh, there's a lot more divorce because they're not staying because they have to stay. And in fact, the, the, the infidelity rate for people under 40 is about 50-50 with men and women now for the first time. And that's because women under 40 are doing pretty much as well as men under 40 economically. And in general, divorces are initiated more in, in this culture by women. And that's increasingly true as people get older. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't always true. Uh, no. you, you pointed out uh, also that um, the, the idea of no-fault divorce, I remember it in my lifetime. That, uh, and, and you've mentioned this a couple times. It's like it takes one person. And then the whole physics changes. And that wasn't always the case. Right. You, you'd have to go in front of a judge and prove that your spouse was a bad person, uh, right? Not so long ago. Yes. I mean, it's just such ritual humiliation. <laughs> My God. And, and so a lot of people just avoid the ritual humiliation of that. Yeah. Um, yeah. The no-fault divorce. You know, God bless California for coming up with no-fault divorce. Now, laws are blunt instruments. And so if you talk to any 10 people who got divorced, at least five of them will have some story about how they got ripped off in some fashion. Well, that's um, why I love what you're saying about it can be more or less stressful, more or less expensive. And if we're going to do it, let's, you know, do it as gently and easily as possible. Yes. Yes. And, and 
it's funny. Getting divorced is a lot like having a baby. You know, the clock's ticking and, you know, we really can't wait for development. You know, there are things happening that we're going to have to deal with for better or for worse. And so, you know, I get very direct with people. And I'll say, so the first thing you guys have to do is go see a lawyer together. There's a form of lawyer called a mediator where they'll see both in family law, where they'll see the couple together. And they'll tell people what their rights and responsibilities are in legally when they separate. So when, when a, the, the day that a couple decides to separate, there are legal consequences of that. Um, one is, is that in certain ways, when, when a couple decides to separate, one person in certain ways can't accumulate debt for, for the couple. Mm-hmm. Uh, things like that. Uh, there are consequences for the person who leaves the house, particularly if there's children in the house. Um, but also, there are property. And so go talk to a lawyer together. You know, I'm wanting to, to keep it as open as possible. Because when it gets adversarial, that's when expenses skyrocket and more people start going crazy. Now, do you have uh, lawyers that you refer people to and refer them away from? Because God knows there are lawyers who will use this as just to milk it for all it's worth. Yes. In Santa Barbara, and I'm not going to name names, but there's lawyers that are famous, famous assholes in divorce proceedings. (laughs) And if you have a, a, if I have a client who, who has a spouse who's extra crazy, you know, there's normal crazy and extra crazy. <laughs> Is that, are those technical psychological terms? Well, they, they are Dr. Keith <laughs> technical psychological terms that are quite useful. <laughs> and I tell you, so usually an extra crazy person doesn't usually stay in treatment with me during the divorce. Um, and if they do, I'll say, you know, you're getting extra crazy around this and you got to get less crazy. Because that extra crazy is going to cost you tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars, and it's going to alienate you from your children and cause a lot of problems, and you've got to deal with it. And sometimes people do it, sometimes they don't. More often than not, I have a normal crazy client, and they're dealing with an extra crazy spouse or ex-spouse. And, and, and so I have lawyers in town that understand the difference between normal crazy and extra crazy. So that's one thing. And there's lawyers in town where if there's an extra crazy spouse, they're going to find the lawyer that's the meanest, you know, person. And these mean person aren't just mean to their partner. They think they're going to be, but they're also mean to the people that hire them. They overcharge them. They do unnecessary litigation. They, they just do all kinds of hideous, icky stuff. Yeah. Um, it's just, it's just a fucking nightmare. I got to tell you, Jeff. I'll bet. And, and so I, I refer people, yes, to the lawyers who are fair and kind and who understand normal crazy and extra crazy. And so a couple will go and have this, and then I'll tell them, look, you need to make decisions about three different stages. The first stage is separating. Who's going to go? Who's going to go where? And whoever is leaving, find a comfortable spot. Because it's passive aggressive to leave and find some kind of really uncomfortable spot. And we're talking about between now and the next six months, because we're going to make a transition. You go through all kinds of psychological changes. And then you got to decide how to keep stable financially. You know, and you don't want to punish each other. You want to make sure everybody's bills get paid and all that kind of stuff. So you get a temporary arrangement about how people are going to have enough money to live. Then you go talk to your mediator, your lawyer, hopefully together. I tell people, if you have the same lawyer do the thing, and then once you get an agreement, you go to different lawyers and get it evaluated about whether it's fair under the law, you're likely to save hundreds of thousands of dollars. And I've known people when they litigate, usually they come up with the same arrangement that they would have had if they would have used a mediator, plus or minus 5%, minus 
10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 80% of their net worth being gone, gone to lawyers. Wow. I had one couple where millions of dollars went to the lawyers because the wife was extra crazy. Extra crazy people can never agree to anything. Interesting. Now, if Mona, my, my client, had, the partner is extra crazy and hires their own lawyer, his own lawyer, and so on, I tell my client, you have to find a lawyer who understands this because um, no-fault divorce is arranged to have series of mediations that are, that are kind of expensive. And you need to know, tell your lawyer, my ex is not going to agree to anything. They're going to pretend to agree to something, but they're not going to agree to it. So what you need to do is facilitate the process as quickly as possible to get this to a judge who decides what the deal is. And once the judge decides what the deal is, your ex-partner still isn't going to go along with that. But then there's steps that you take after that to force them to go along with it. Hmm. Because they're extra crazy. If they're extra crazy. They don't care about going along with what the judge says. Interesting. And so I inform them about all this. I have them go to the mediator. I talk to them uh, about the stress they're going to go through. People go, what do you mean stress? I go, well... Even though you can't stand each other right now, when your nervous systems really get that you're losing this person, you still are losing a primary attachment figure. And nervous systems freak out around that and you begin to grieve. Mm -hmm. And you'll have impulses to go get comfort talking to each other. And if you try to do it, you're just going to end up fighting, having a horrible time. And so when you feel that grief and you want to have that impulse to get comforted from a partner, don't do that. Go to your therapist. Go to your friends. Go to your family. Don't go to your children. You know, get comfort, but recognize no matter how pissed off, how glad you are to be separate, part of you is going to grieve and part of you is going to try to keep that person available to you in some fashion. And it'll be confusing. Hmm. And so be aware. Be ready that that's going to happen. Well, that's so interesting because I'm actually dealing with a friend now who is facing the possibility of divorce later in life uh, mm -hmm. when she least expected it after a long marriage, but has been so mistreated by her husband with affairs and lying where it's just clear to everybody that this is over, but she's just it, uh, herself astonished that pulling that last plug is just so hard. She hasn't yet been able to do it. And it's just remarkable these what you're you're talking about that the deconstructing of a two space of a marriage yes. is deep and complicated. It is. You, you know, it's it's funny to me always. Say one client is just associated around sex, or or one couple. You know, sometimes you know couples that are kind of low arousal, um, emotionally avoidant couples will just stop having sex. So they haven't had sex in three years, say, five years. And one of them goes out and has an affair. And the partner gets outrageously over-the-top jealous. How could you do that? And I'm sitting there going, well, first of all, it's kind of nice to see that person's sexuality is alive and well, even though this affair is a mess. And second of all, that attachment circuit in you, when you feel that a relationship challenge, it goes into mate protection. Even if you haven't been doing the work to stay a mate with that person. Right. You know, we're, we are, we are we beings. We are born in relationship. We are addicted to each other. We live our lives in relationship with others and with ourselves, um, and with other people. And 
that attachment is, is the, the primary person is powerful and it's deep. Now, when, when couples don't take on the responsibility of having that be mutually pleasurable, of having that be positively connected, they can have a relationship that's, that's unsatisfying. It can be high conflict. It can just be dull um, and so on. It can be joyless and, you know, lots of stuff. But that, that attachment is still there. Um, it's, mm-hmm. it's visceral. Those, they're just hard, dedicated circuits. Now, when we separate, this becomes a great developmental opportunity as well as a lot of stress. One is I have to help people grieve. You, you need to stay away from the person. You need to educate your nervous system that that person is no longer available. It's not like they died. It's not like you can't, you know, you can't call up somebody who died and say, you know, I really miss you a lot. Can we just have a little conversation? Yeah, all right, sure. You know, I have nothing else to do down here. I mean, you can't do that when someone's dead, but you can when you're divorcing. And so I encourage people, don't do that. Call somebody else. Allow yourself to go through the grieving process. Don't try to comfort each other. And you'll want to. You'll see your partner suffering for, for the last loss of you. Your heart will reach out to her or him and you'll want to comfort her or her. And you're not the person to do that yeah. during separation. That's, you don't have that contract anymore. Yeah. But you still – you don't discourage conversation about the kids, about other things, or do you? No. I'll let them know. You might be able to be friends eventually. There's a category of people, divorced people who become best friends, which is great. It is. I'm in that category and I, I'm so grateful. Yeah, and, you know, and that's not surprisingly, that's a function of you being a well put together guy and, you know, you're choosing well put together guys. Yeah. Well put together people. I've known exes to, to vacation with their partner, you know, their new spouses and they go off on vacation together. Yeah. Okay. And that's great for them and it's great for the children. But you can't do that right away. You have to go through the separation. Your body, mind, spirit system has to acknowledge the loss of that primary that's attachment. Right. And I'll tell them that. You can be friends eventually, but not right away. Right away, now you have to create separate lives. And that separate lives, basically, if there's kids, involves the one family now has become two families. And each, each these new families will have their own identity. And, you know, we need to now help you discover what the identity of these two new families are and how you can help each other with it. Um, and so I encourage them to be very specific about money, about property, about kids, um, but not about psychological, emotional issues. Take that to other people. You know, you need to be cooperative. And then I'll, and I'll let them know uh, there's a lot of stuff about kids. And, you know, we're kind of getting to the kid part of the conversation. Yeah, cool. Um, the kid part of the conversation is a big deal. I want all children to develop well. I know the children of divorce are more at risk. They're twice as likely to divorce themselves. They're twice as likely to have psychological problems. I know that if their parents have a high conflict throughout the divorce, they're even more likely to have psychological problems, more likely to have drug and alcohol abuse. I mean, you know, just a lot of stuff. I'm very protective of those children. And I'll tell other parents this. And I'll say, so here's the deal. First of all, you guys decide what you're doing. You decide who's moving where, how you're arranging it. And then you decide who's going to have the kids when. And usually they're pretty good about this, but then there's some issues. If the kids are under three, there's some attachment issues that I need to talk to them about. In other words, if you have a two-year-old and the two-year-old has a primary attachment to one parent and not to the other, it's traumatic for that kid to have sleepovers at the, at the other parent's right. house. And the parent will go, well, it's my right. It's my kid. And I'll go, look, 
I really don't want to hear about this you're right, your kid bullshit when we're talking about your kid's welfare. If your kid is traumatized by sleepovers, don't have sleepovers. You know, pick your kid up, have a great day with your kid, and then drop them over so they're not traumatized spending the night at your house. Um, you know, we're thinking in terms of your kid's development. Yeah. And so you decide on what you're going to do, and then you, you inform the kids in language they can understand what the deal is. Mom and dad are going to live in separate places. Why are you divorcing? You tell them the truth. You know, I, you can love somebody and care about somebody, but not be happy living together. I am not happy living with your mother. I'm not happy living with your father. Your mother's not happy living with me or whatever. It's just one person who decides. You don't lie to the kids. So we're going to live separately. Kids go, I don't like that. You go, well, I don't, don't blame me. I don't like it either, but that's the way it's working and we're, we'll do our best with it. Now, would you advise people to, you wouldn't advise them to talk about the affairs or uh, the unfaithfulness with the kids or, would you? Well, it depends on the age of the kid. A kid under six or seven doesn't really get what an affair is to begin with. Right. After that, they they can get it and they're quite interested and they have very strong moral compasses about it. And so if an affair is, you're going to have to explain it. Yeah. You know, daddy's in love with another woman. Well, that's not right. Well, you know, I agree with you, but, you know, you know, daddy, you're in love with, yeah, it just happened and it didn't happen the way that I wish it would have happened, but it, that's the way it is. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, it, it, if it doesn't, if, if that's not the explanation right away, if, if it's that, mm-hmm. you know, it's often in, there's different kinds of affairs as we've talked about. There's the, I'm in love with another person, want to share my life with another person affair, but that's not the most common affair. Most common affair is, you know, we're, we went to Candyland together and I'm, you know, and I enjoy being in Candyland and, you know, <laughs> the kid doesn't have to hear about you in Candyland. Right. And in general, during, during, you know, when you're a separate, a single parent, it's not a good idea to, in, to introduce your kid to your lovers until it looks like it, the lover is going to be a more or less uh, uh, permanent thing. So you'd give the kids and you don't give kids choices about, about well, you know, what do you think we should do? You know, because kids often will feel responsible. Say, you know, you have a kid who's a problem and, you know, you fight, the kid, parents often fight about kids. 60 or 70% of, of, of couples fights often when their parents are about kids. So a kid will go, oh, you're divorcing because of me, right? Because you're always fighting about me. And you got to tell the kid, no, we both love you a lot. In fact, the fact that you're around, man, we stayed together longer than we would have if you weren't around. Mm-hmm. Um, so it has nothing to do with you. And the kid might not ask that, but you tell him anyway. This mm-hmm. has nothing to do with you guys. This is just us. We both love you. We're both completely connected to you. Now, this is a couple who's willing to do this. You know, sometimes there's a father who just takes off. Usually a father, sometimes a mother. They just take off, and then that becomes a signature trauma that we all have to deal with. Right. And so you inform the children, okay, who hate it, you know, often develop symptoms of some sort. And so, you know, we got to get the kids into environments where their symptoms to be addressed. And then I have to talk to the parents about helping the kids. Now, this becomes extra problematic if one of the parents is extra crazy. <laughs> so now I'm working with the normal crazy parent, not just having to deal with the extra crazy parent around the separation, not just having to deal with them around the money and the property, not just having to deal with them around all the lies that they're telling their lawyer. And the lawyer then adds their own lies because they always pick asshole lawyers. And, you know, capricious litigation and this and subpoenas and whatnot, all kinds of bullshit. Now I have to help them manage the extra crazy parent acting badly, often abusively with these children. Mm. 
And so in, in the worst case scenario, that's me teaching them how to make child protective service reports, sometimes making the reports myself. Hmm. And beginning to build up a, a case so that they can eventually go to court if they have the resources, which most people don't, but some people do, to get the law involved to protect their kid from the extra crazy part of their extra crazy partner. Um, and, you know, I've had some success with people with that, but only people that have had a lot of resources who are able to afford me and are able to afford a lawyer and able to be patient around this. Luckily, that's rare. Most people are pretty dedicated to their children. And then, you know, you have to come up with protocols about how to deal with parenting issues. And in the legal system in California, it's interesting. If a judge finds that a couple just can't decide on anything, usually because one person is extra crazy, the couple will, the judge will appoint what's called a special master. And it's an interesting term. It is. Special master. So here's what the special master does. The couples can't agree on what to do and they'll go to the special master and the special master will listen and say, okay, this is the way it's going to be. And then it has to be that way. It's like mandatory mediation. And extra crazy people sometimes need that. Now that still sucks, but it's better than the alternative. And you, you can see how that arose out of people that were just endless litigators and the judges said, Jesus, what do we do about this? We have to have an endpoint." And they came up with the special master thing. Mm -hmm. And so then you have people go through steps. Sometimes people want to separate before they file for divorce. So you do the separation. Sometimes people want to separate and still have couple sessions. So, okay, I'll, I'll help them with the separation and they'll come into the couple session. I'll go, all right, now, what are we doing? You're separate and you're here together. Yeah. And we've already talked about, we've already had the separation session. You know, space-time continuum has already wavered and you've mm -hmm. become different. You know, what, what's the purpose of this meeting? Well, we still want to see each other. Oh, that's new. <laughs> How do you want to see each other? Well, you know, we don't, we're not quite sure. I go, okay, so let's create a dating schedule. Now that hardly ever works, but we try it and once in a while it does. Uh -huh. And you know, you have to talk specifically, for instance, if we're separating now, does that mean our monogamy bond is stopped? Sometimes the person will say yes. Sometimes they'll say no. If the monogamy bond is stopped, then I'll go, so is the deal, but are you going to guys going to date? No, I don't feel like dating. Nobody feels like dating right away uh, if there's not an affair happening because, you know, the last thing you want to do is date when you're in the middle of a mess. But I'm still, you know, worried. I'm still distressed about, you know, I'm worried about him going out. He's cheated in the past. She's cheated in the past. I'll go, all right, how about a deal where you're not going to start dating until you tell the other person first? You know, so I'm going to tell you, you know, I'm going to start dating this week. I'm going to start dating tomorrow. So you know that tonight when you go home, you're by yourself. Your partner is not screwing somebody else because they were going to tell you before they start dating. And I do this to protect people from obsessive rumination if they're the person who's being left. Because there's a real difference in the psychology between the person who's being left and the person who's leaving. The person who's leaving usually initially feels a lot of relief. Because they're leaving, and they're leaving for a lot of reasons that they're that they're having a lot of pain, right. and so the pain stops a lot when they leave. So there's a lot of relief. They don't start feeling the grief if they're going to feel it until after you know they kind of that initial giddiness of relief passes. To the person left, they can be completely devastated, just leveled. Yeah, and this is some of the worst psychological pain that I've ever seen. Mm. It, it's actually stronger sometimes than the pain of somebody dying. Yeah.
because well, you know, and, and it's why people have such a hard time doing this. Oh, you know, it's, it's just awful. The worst pain of my life was when my girlfriend left me when I was 23. Yeah. I mean, I, or one of the worst pains. Yes, indeed. Um, it, it's just devastating. So, so with that person, they need to be educated about the stages of grief and, and reassured. You're not going to feel like this forever. And if you have any capacity for suicidal ideation or, or stuff, you know, it comes up around this time and, you know, everybody gets all vigilant. And I let them know because the person who's leaving and who feels relief, they'll look at the person who's devastated and they'll go, why, why don't you feel relief like me? <laughs> I know. Yeah, and they'll just feel like, you know, shooting them and I don't blame them. And so I'll say, look, I have to explain to them about states of consciousness. I've explained to them about, you know, you're, you're in different life stages of this particular thing. You're having a different experience. And, it, and so you do your relief thing and that's fine. And you're going to have your own issues. You need to have your devastation thing. And the relief person really can't soothe the devastation person other than by being kind and fair and, and disconnected and the dev, and supporting the devastation person and getting lots of support. From their friends and their family and from their therapist and their community to work through their stages of grief so they can begin to have their eyes cleared. Mm-hmm. It's funny, yeah, you know, the, the devastated person often will say, I'm never going to date again. You know, I'm sick of it. I've had it with women. I've had it with men. Usually I've had it with men. Yeah. You know, the, the, the testosterone sex drive keeps guys, you know, they always have that dream. There's some babe out there that'll solve all my problems. But a woman will go, okay, you know, I've had it. You know, I'm never going to date again. I go, yeah, I know how you feel. Uh, I'm sure that you feel that way. And good idea not to be dating right now anyway. Because I know what's going to happen. You know, five, six, seven months down the line, they're going to be going, geez, you know, talking to their girlfriends. Yeah. You know, they'll, they'll, you know they checked out Match.com. And they'll say, I don't know, Keith. You know, I'd, I'd kind of like to, you know, I kind of saw somebody I like. I go, all right. Looks like you're ready to start dating. And then they'll start again. Um, I remember one woman, she had this bad experience after a year with a guy and she looked at me, she was so pissed at me because I had been supportive of her. She says, I don't want you to talk to me about dating anymore. I don't want you to talk to me about relationships. I don't want any of that. She was really mad. I went, all right, I, I will not encourage you and I'll not do that. That's fine. And, you know, of course, you're all pissed off at him. I don't blame you. You know, you acted like a dick and I'm glad you're not with him. And he had to act like a dick and I was glad she wasn't with him. <laughs> she happens to be happily married right now. Yeah. <laughs> She got over it. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Well, you so, know, what? well, even developmentally, as, as we live longer, I mean, do you think we're going to have more divorce? It, it, it's it's like, I, I think we could see that, don't, didn't we talk about this before where at the orange and green level, actually marriages are more stable than mm-hmm. they are at the earlier stages? Um, yeah. And where do you think that's going? And we talked about the integral marriage. What's like the best divorce you've seen? You know, <laughs> I, I, what's what's a good integral divorce? Or um, and how do you think it's going as we get sort of better at this? So this is a great question, and and also it takes me back to some that Ken and I I think disagree about. Though I'm not sure. It's hard to hard to find to know if you disagree with Ken. Martin Uke thinks that people in different value memes don't really go together. And I disagree. I think that people that are in the healthy range of value memes fit together pretty well. Um, and people in the unhealthy range of any value meme aren't going to do well with anybody. Mm-hmm. But that's just, you know, that's, that's been my experience. So, so first of all, there's, there's looking at divorce and marriage from an integral standpoint. Yes. There's going to be more divorce while we're living twice as long as we did a hundred years ago. Women have more power. 
the standard of, of marriage is a fulfillment standard now more than a stability standard. Um, and the fulfillment standard is a much more demanding standard. And people are much more likely to adopt that standard without adopting the commitment to the practices that maintain that standard. You know, the archetype for, for a solid connection, a connection goes all the way back to a mother and an infant. So the infant's born in relationship. The, in, the universe that the infant lives in is not a physical universe. It's a relational universe, primarily. And that universe is characterized by the, the, the child losing connection from the mother. And the mother, if she's an attuned mother, noticing that, finding the child, attuning to the child, and then they find each other. And that's a little burst of pleasure, a little dopamine, oxytocin burst of pleasure. 70% of the time with infants and mothers, they're miscoordinated. But the, but the attuned mother stays connected, looks into the child's eyes, finds the child. Child gets found. Ah, that feels good. Mm-hmm. Goes someplace else, gets distracted, you know, has pain, you know, loses, and then the mother finds him. Lose, find, lose, find, lose, find, lose, find, lose, find. Finding the baby, finding the baby. So that continues. We all want to be found. The baby in us always wants that little moment of connection. Now, as grown-ups, we can block that. Like, for instance, at 16 months old, a child can hide emotions from a parent. Before 16 months, kids can't. They're just, you know, the emotions are just there. So after 16 months, they can. And we get better at that. So we always want to be found. We want to keep finding each other. And in, in, in joyful relationships, that's a responsibility. That's my responsibility to keep finding you until we feel that little mm, yummy. And your responsibility to keep finding me. And that's what maintains it. And you're you know, talking so about marriage here. Perhaps. Marriage here. Yeah. Okay, so we go fast forward, and but now we have two adults having to do it with each other while they have all their defenses and their resistances. But I like that. And I just want to pause there for a second. I mean, when I think of my relationship now, that's really helpful to sort of contextualize it in these moments of finding each other. Because you're right. They are just delicious, mm-hmm. and they really do sustain us. And that's a nice way of thinking about it, so thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> and you notice they involve looking each other in the eyes. Yes. Involve touch, involve smile. So with that responsibility in a fulfillment-based relationship, either people learn about it or they don't. Most of the people, most of the people that I know in successful relationships, the successful relationship was their second one. You know, I grew up in the hippie time. So I lived with a woman for three years and I didn't marry her, but it essentially was a first marriage. Yeah. And so my next relationship, I was somewhat more sophisticated and somewhat more able to do this. Um, and so, yes, you can, in that first relationship, those three years living together was a very successful relationship. It was like Margaret Mead. It was like Margaret Mead's first marriage. Mm-hmm. And so there's going to be more of that. There's going to be people coming together. But then, now here's the integral understanding. As we get, as we get deeper on the relational line, the psychosocial line of development, the relational line of development, and the psychosexual line of development, we begin to discover that that depth involves knowing each other more and more and more deeply and having more and more shared life experience. And that gathers momentum over time. And as we begin to get that and we begin to recognize that's important, we're one time more protective of it. So we take on more of the responsibility of finding each other on a regular basis. And two, we're more reluctant to give that up or threaten it by having secret affairs or by engaging in some kind of rampant self-destructive behavior like right. addiction or, or something. And so uh, from an integral standpoint, 
the more that people consciously are focusing on development, the more likely they are to um, value that kind of mutuality and recognize that it has components that are necessary. For instance, you got to have a good sex life. Um, when I have people that are integral attitude on some lines but are not taking on the responsibility of being with their, their partner, I get a lot of passive-aggressive stuff. Hmm. There'll be one, one partner who's just – he goes, yeah, I'm doing the work. I'm going to therapy. You know, I'm finding out what my type is. You know, I'm doing this and that. I'm negotiating. But they're not doing what it takes to embody their – if they're the feminine partner, the more feminine, their feminine responsibility in, in the love affair or the masculine responsibility in the love affair. And when it gets down to that, the challenge is, look, if you don't do that, your, your partner who's also at an integral level is going to stay to hell with it. And they go, well, yeah, I'm working on it. I go, yeah, working on it is not the same as doing it. Right. If you're working on it, you have, if you're really working on it, you're making progress. So, you know, you, if you're working on sex for a year, you haven't had sex yet. Sorry. You're yeah. pretending to work on it. Yeah. You know, and that's pretend therapy if you're in therapy. And, you know, and all therapists at some point or another are realizing at some point they're doing a pretend therapy thing. And if they're smart, they go, uh-oh, we're doing pretend therapy instead of real therapy. Let's do real therapy. Hmm. And so those kinds of conversations where you can have added levels of self-observation and other observations, those become more available as we go up the developmental ladder. Mm -hmm. um, those couples, by the way, are the – for me as a couples counselor – Probably 35% of my practice is couples, okay? Maybe 30%. Mm -hmm. Those are the most fun couples. Now, they get just as – when they come to me, they're very usually very powerful people who have been able to intimidate other therapists, which is kind of fun. <laughs> so they come to me, you know, and they're real high-functioning, and then they get into their stuff, and they just, you know, turn into fucking screaming babies. <laughs> and so when I interrupt their screaming babiness, and I go, you know, you just, you just regress three developmental levels – yeah, but she deserved it. And I go, really? She deserved it? You know, is that, she, you know, she, you're punishing her? Yeah, she deserved to be punished. She deserved to be punished. <laughs> you know, and like integral people will just start cracking up. Right. At that point. Yeah. And if there's two people doing that, I just had a couple like this this week. They're just delightful. You know, and they come in and they know. They know they're great. But also they know that they're, when they go into their stuff, they're just, and I have no patience with their stuff. And they love coming to me because I have no, in fact, this last session was a really great session because they said, yeah, we got into it. And then, you know, I went into the room because fuck her. And then 10 minutes later, I came out and asked her if she wanted. I said, good. And then 15 minutes later, I, I went over and said, you know, I've been tired. Good. We woke up and decided that we weren't going to talk about it. We we're going to save it for therapy and we were going to have our, our date this morning to have sex instead. I said, boy, if I had a box of gold stars, I would be giving each no one of you five gold stars. Yeah. But they were only, they didn't realize it, but they were only able to do that because on most developmental lines, these people are teal. Yeah. Well, and yeah, that's so. the characteristic is at teal and turquoise, we get good self-observation so we can see ourselves instead of just being, you know, expressing. And two, we have more options. And three, I think we do have a, a better sense of humor. I mean, I think you, <laughs> you, you begin to be amused by your own subpersonalities rather yeah, right. than terrorized by them. Right. You know, and that's, that's that's a whole new ball game. It really is. One of the things I like that, like as a therapist, is those defenses are on one hand more challenging because they're more sophisticated, <laughs> but they're more relaxing because they're less dangerous. Yeah. High functioning people don't have that danger. I'm going to go crazy or I'm going to kill myself or I'm going to wreck something. You know, great. 
So I'm, I'm delighted to deal with your sophisticated defenses that you use to confuse everybody in the world. I'm really good at not getting confused by defenses. I'm happy as hell to go into those with you and let's straighten them out and help you grow. And if you're in a relationship, for them, it feels very miraculous to go from places where they'd lose each other for 24 hours or 48 hours to a place where they lose each other for 10 minutes or 20 minutes. Yeah. And now we're back loving each other. Okay? And that's how relationships need to grow. And you know, on every level, it's like that. Now, if you're dealing with just red people, which I've dealt with, mm-hmm. it's an entire different kind of conversation. Um, like, for like instance. A, I, excuse me? Like, for instance, with a red guy. Okay. So here's this red guy. So first of all, yeah, you know, here's a horrible combination. Red altitude, methamphetamine addiction. Okay. <laughs> this is a, this is a very bad combination. So this guy after, I don't know, he, he was referred to me to the court. I don't take court referrals anymore, but I did this time. So he came to me sober from meth. Thank God. You know, a hard worker, successful. And he had a relationship with another kind of a, a woman who's kind of a red woman. And, you know, so he's into his whole power God stuff. And I said, okay, so my challenge to him was, and he was in his anger management group. My, so my challenge to him was, all right, look, you turn into a bully when you're pissed off and then you lose her. And she might have sex with you or she might go along, you know, but secretly she's thinking, what a bully. So when you feel like being a bully, you need to become the man of wisdom. In other words, you need to become a better power God. So he loved that. He took that back to his anger management group and told them all about the man of wisdom. And they were all over that. Here, you know, they became the man of wisdom, you know, anger management group. And so every time that he started surrendering to his impulses to bully people, I said, that's not man of wisdom. You know, that's bully bullshit. Yeah. You know, like you, can, you, you have more power than that. Okay, use your power wisely. Now, as he did that, he didn't realize it, but he was beginning to develop blue principles yes, that were bigger than him. Like the principle of don't be, don't be mean to somebody. Yeah. Don't be cruel. Yeah. That there's, it's not justified. So he was, and you know, and, and being in recovery usually helps. It didn't help him. Narcotics Anonymous, the 12 step program didn't ring true to him the way that it does. You know, you know, addiction tends to be a, a red disorder. And so the 12 step program is a blue program. And so that's why people can, can up level from red addiction to blue 12 step mm-hmm. because there's, there's spiritual in it, spirituality in there. And then there's a, a larger, um, a blue framework that's where, where it's bigger than me. Yeah. And I, I pay allegiance to it and I'm serving other people. And that's the natural growth cycle for red is to grow into that. Exactly. And you grow in the blue and you get solid in blue. And, and then if people continue to work a program, that becomes like their religion and it becomes a conveyor belt. And I've seen people in AA go to orange AA and go to green AA. And I have some people I work with that are teal and turquoise AA. Yes. And those are the people that are the spiritual instructors in yeah. AA. And their relationships will reflect that. And so that, that affects the language that I use with them. And also it affects the, the, the kinds of relationships they have with each other and with their children. Um, I just had a, a, a red father fire me because he bullied his kids. I get very impatient with fathers who bully children or parents who bully children. And so I, I mistaken, and this is my, a mistake on my part. I use that word. I said, well, you know, you get upset and you start bullying your family. And so they're organizing to manage your anger, and that's not a really good thing. And so three days later, um, he, you know, he bullied his wife into, into firing me. You know, his wife says, you know, there's not a good fit between you and so-and-so. <laughs> well, no, you know, and what I needed to do was be more patient with his red power god stuff until he and I had a better alliance, and I didn't. You know, and that, I was being too protective in a way of his children in that mm-hmm. case. 
And so that's how, that's how that works. Um, now, as a relate, speaking about divorce, if you got somebody like that and you have a codependent, um, partner who's a blue codependent, you know, with a red power god, often that's a, you'll see that with the guy being a red power god and the woman being blue codependent. Sometimes it's the reverse. Sometimes you'll have an extra crazy red woman and a blue codependent guy. That codependent relationship can be maintained, but if one of those people starts growing, and if they're in therapy, somebody's going to grow, then it destabilizes it. And then out of that destabilization, there comes a better relationship or one person decides to leave and now we're back into divorce territory. Now, my bias is always to have people capitalize on a relationship and improve it. But once in a while, one person makes that decision to separate. And then, you know, the space-time continuum shifts and we go into these divorce steps. And and then I'll tell people, you know, okay, I'll shift and I'll help you with this. And I do help them with it and, and so on. And And the opportunity at that point, and this is the really big deal, during that point, because you're ripped open by a divorce, when you're ripped, and particularly the person who's left, the person who's leaving, um, particularly if they're leaving for another partner, are, are kind of at risk for not doing the work. But at that point, in that disintegration, the disorientation, you're opened up. And that's a very, very fruitful time, potentially in therapy. Because you then, okay, what were your, what were your contributions to the dissolution of this relationship? Yeah. Was it how you chose people? So I, you know, give them a big dose of the five stars about how they choose. Was it your sense of, of, of not having a sense of responsibility to maintain finding each other? Was it you deserting your husband or your wife sexually? Was it you making the kids more important in the relationship? You know, what was it? Let's work on that. Let's grow you in that area. Yeah. Let's get, they make that more, more available to you because you'll have, you're going to have another relationship almost certainly. And in that next relationship, you run the risk of recapitulating that pattern. Um, but if you are more wise, when that pattern begins, you'll catch it in the early stages where you can, it's a lot easier to turn it back into love. And that's the opportunity at that time. And I'll tell people, use that opportunity. You know, when you're ripped open like that, use it to grow. Yeah, right on. And um, it just makes me think that in the sacred world to come, everyone will be assigned a therapist. <laughs> and, and, every, yeah. and every couple. Oh, I always think, think I remember something Scott Peck said, the guy who wrote The Road Less Traveled. He said that you should uh, have a therapist until you are developed enough to be your own therapist. And well, there's some truth to that. And, you know, I don't know. I don't know about Scott M. Scott Peck, but I don't know if I'm ever going to be developed enough to not need my own therapist. Yeah. I remember I, I was in a deposition once and there was this hostile asshole attorney deposing me. I don't, you know, I used to stay out of stuff like that, but I got lassoed into this thing because a client of mine was, you know, a lawsuit and it was going to help her. So I said, okay. So he was asking me about therapy and I was saying it. So at one point he looked at me with this contempt. He said, so you think everybody needs therapy? I said, yeah. yeah. This would be a much better world if everybody had therapy. And he, of course, in my mind thinking, you know, especially you, you asshole, you would really benefit. <laughs> yeah. Well, it has been so helpful for me. And as you say, I mean, you, you, you just can't do the, the kind of rigorous introspection that comes from good therapy without growing. That's it's right. just the natural result of that. It's like putting a seed in the ground and watering it. It, it, it grows. It is. Yeah. Under its own power with this right. help. So, you know, as, as we talk about even moving into these integral stages, there's just more happiness. There's more to do. There's more satisfaction just in the integral stages of consciousness individually, mm -hmm. and then 
to have a relationship at that stage and to even end a relationship at that stage in a way that's conscious is all possible for us. Yes, it is. You know, one of the things that I was aware of in 19, I, I started therapy when I was a baby. I was 23 years old when I did my first session. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I rapidly became aware of something the first, just those couple of years, and it's been true ever since, that I was aware that whoever I was working with, that if I didn't experience them as beautiful, I had not gone deep enough into them. Yeah. That if we kept going deeper at a particular point, I was experiencing them as beautiful, and then they were experiencing themselves as beautiful. Yeah. And I think that that, in a way, is what integral. Integral is, is that it, in terms of development, to a certain extent, it's becoming, it's not about change as much, is it's becoming more, more purely ourselves, yeah. you know, our deepest self, capital S self, mm -hmm. you know, that, that spirit self that is unique to us. Mm-hmm. And beautiful beyond belief. And that development basically is just more and more and more having that be who we are. And if, if I can engineer that part of me touching that part of you. Oh my God. Ah. Uh, and if we can do it when we're having sex. Uh, oh my God. And if we can keep it going. Uh, <laughs> well, I hope nobody plays this soundtrack just by itself. And, it, and, if we can, and then if we can teach our children how to do it. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's my vision of the future. That's what I want for everybody. Yeah. You know, like, you know, on a, now from an integral standpoint, remember, we go from the largest to small. That's why I want to take a lot of money off the top and just invest it heavily into pregnant mothers and into childcare and to creating stable situations for young families and providing all kinds of help and, and aids and, and therapists and everything and in the, the first for young families and for mothers and for fathers and just setting people's nervous systems and people's relational systems up so that they're less likely to develop pathology and more likely to seek help when they need, need it. Yeah. The, the studies around that are ridiculous. You know, you spend a dollar on uh, a mother and, a, and an infant and it saves the, the collective $20 by the time that kid's 30 years old. Mm-hmm. It's like, boy, is that a great investment? Yeah. Well, you know, once again, you, you know, give me an idea of what's possible in all of us. And I really appreciate it, Keith. Is there any other piece of this? The, I see we're getting to the end of our time here. Yeah. Any other piece of this divorce puzzle that we missed or you want to emphasize or? Well, yeah, the, the, the thing is, is if you have doubts, and, you know, we have a culture that generates doubt about relationship because we have such high standards. Don't ignore them. Go talk to a therapist about them. Even more, if you don't want to talk to a therapist, talk to your partner about them. And if those doubts don't turn into more certainty about your relationship, then go talk to a therapist. Take them seriously and explore them. And recognize that those doubts aren't just going to lead to asking, wanting your partner to change. Those doubts are going to lead to steps that you can take developmentally for yourself. Yeah. And that you want to follow those doubts into that with the help of somebody who knows what they're doing. And that will lead to good things. Yeah. And if it's a divorce, it'll be a good divorce. And if it's a relationship improving, it'll be, it'll be improving in a good way, you know? And so you trust that process. Mm -hmm. You know, don't ignore yourself. You know, pay attention to those voices and get help with those voices and then take those, take those insights into your relationship and challenge your relationship to be a better relationship. Beautifully said. 
Thank you so much. Thank uh, you. You bet. And uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. Again, you can find out more about Keith and his work at drkeithwitt.com. You can see more about me on dailyevolver.com. And we'll see you back here again at The Shrink and the Pundit. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> Bye. Bye-bye, everybody.